Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. Stephen Woolley is an award-winning producer of such films as The Crying Game and Interview with the Vampire. In 2005, we met to talk about his latest film, Stoned, which follows the life and mysterious death of Rolling Stones co-founder Brian Jones. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. I started this film when I was producing um, Into the Vampire and because Brad Pitt is such a huge Rolling Stones fan during the first period of the film there were big rumours saying Brad Pitt was going to play Brian Jones which patently was never going to happen because I didn't even discuss it with Brad but from that from then through End of the Affair through uh, Butcher Boy and you know, all the other films I produced, I was kind of going back to it. So it was sort of like starting something and delving back in and then doing another movie and then delving back in. I think during The Good Thief, which is the film I made with Nick Nolte in the south of France, was the point where I realised, God, I've really got to get this film on the road. You know, I've been playing around with it for so long. And it's, that was the point where the writers also said to me, y you've got to direct this yourself. This is crazy. You can't, you can't invest so much into something and then just give it to someone else. You're not, it's not going to happen. I think they were just scared that it wouldn't get made, to be honest. Well, as much as uh, Brad Pitt, you know, he's a great actor, but I think for this type of film, you really need someone that is not, doesn't really have a following in terms of, when you see Brad Pitt, you already know all the stuff that he's done, and yeah, he's a was, big personality. So it, it, the casting was exactly as you're saying. We, we, we really, I had a problem, which is that, you know, if I'd have cast Ewan McGregor or Jude Law, I think people would have thought, oh, that's Jude Law with a wig, or that's Ewan McGregor doing Bryant, you know. And I wanted somebody that was, that was, that was, that would be readily accepted as being Brian Jones, rather than an actor that you would recognize, you know. And that's happened to me in the past as a producer, where I've cast somebody in a film that, um, I think Julia Roberts in, in I, I remember in, Michael Collins was a problem for Americans because they accepted the film. They accepted Liam Neeson and Stephen Ray and Alan Rickman and Aidan Quinn. But then when Julia came on, I could feel in the, the American audience kind of go, oh, it's a Hollywood biopic. So uh, up to a certain point, they, re they, they really bought the film and they bought into the truth of it. But then as soon as you get somebody as famous as Julia Roberts playing an historical character, people lose it. They just don't accept it, don't buy it. In Europe, it didn't happen that way. In Britain and, and Ireland, people just completely bought the film, didn't have a problem with it at all, and thought Julia was great. But they just don't have the same. Americans have a very different resonance with certain characters like Julia Roberts or Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise. They expect them to be in certain types of movies. And if you come out of that, I mean, for instance, if Tom Cruise were to do Julius Caesar tomorrow, you know, as soon as you see Tom Cruise in a, in a toga, you will go, oh my God, that isn't how I perceive Tom Cruise to be. Right. Tom Cruise is Mission Impossible. Tom Cruise is, is, is you know, very, very current, very modern, very sort of chiseled American guy from now. And so some actors really have a problem, I think, trying to get outside of the, the box that, they, that, that they're in for themselves. Well, it's kind of like you have personality and, you know, for example, a Dustin Hoffman or Al Pacino, they used to or even now this Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's done so many different roles that he's kind of a chameleon. 
Yeah, they're, oh, Gene Hackman. I mean, there are actors that are actors, and people accept them as such, and then there are actors that become stars. And the problem with the star syndrome is that you expect your stars to be who they are. Um, and I think that's what happened to Jack Nicholson. If you look at the golden age of Jack Nicholson, which is probably through the 60s to, to around about 75, 76, you know, he could play anything. And he did everything, fantasy right. pieces and wonderful movies. Uh, you know, the, uh, just Drive He Said, uh, up until, I think, One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. And then he became Jack Nicholson. Then he became a star. He became someone that you recognized as Jack Nicholson. And that almost parody of Jack Nicholson became the Jack Nicholson that we know now. But for, for, for a while, he was just like Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was an amazing actor that just did all sorts of things. And so for Stoned, I didn't want to have someone that was a kind of already established, mannered, performance. I needed somebody that people would go, oh, that's Brian Jones. So Leo had done, Leo Gregory, who plays Brian Jones, he's done a few movies. Um, one called Out of Control, which he was absolutely brilliant in, um, but he was a very different kind of character from the character who plays in my movie. So I cast him um, after I'd met him, because when I saw him in the film, I thought, oh my God, this guy is so rough and tough and, and evil. Brian was like an angel, and there was no angelic qualities within the film that I saw within uh, Out of Control that Leo was in. But I met the guy, and he was so sweet and lovely and nice, and I thought, oh, actually, he's acting. He's a good actor. So, well, well, you really need that for this character, I think, too, because part yeah. of him is a little bit naive and almost helpless. I mean, there's a, there's a funny scene in the film where it's raining, and he calls uh, his assistant, the builder, yeah, to fix the the he thinks that the what is it the sewage or whatever is going to overflow. Yeah, he, yeah, it's the cesspool. It and it turns out he just has to put a cover put over cover it. on. Yeah, well, that was Brian was like that. Brian was 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 very reliant upon help from people. So was Keith Richards actually. I mean, the, the Rolling Stones were successful very quickly and extremely popular, and they were very kind of uh, small, skinny. Guys that just really didn't weren't used to lifting things up or or fixing things. They were very spoiled at a very early age, and people like Frank Thorogood, um, who's played by Paddy uh, Constantine in the movie, and Tom Keelock, who's who's played by um, David Morrissey, were the kind of people that really they needed around them. They actually needed people to put things, you know, on. I mean, lift up heavy objects. They just didn't do that. And because they were so pressured with the with their fame, with the girls and the huge amount of of um, interest, there there really wasn't that there really wasn't a sort of security firm or um, a kind of PR uh, helper that was in those days that could could really look after those kind of guys. They you know they would rely upon the police or you know the kind of social services in a sense. So someone like Frank Thorogood in The Life of Brian Jones was absolutely essential. And he was really a terrific uh, uh, aide to Brian. You know, he wasn't just uh, a builder. He was also his butler and his security guy and his cook and his gopher. Um, and that's what fascinated me with the, with the film, um, was 
how does someone like Frank, who was just a builder from North London working class background, get to be in the life of someone like Brian Jones, this massively successful star who had been on some of the biggest hits of the sixties? And what would that be? What would that world be like for both of them? You know, what would the world be like for Brian, inviting into his home? someone who had no concept of what Brian was, was, was talking about or recording or thinking about. Um, I was that, that was the big mistake that Brian made. I was reading in the uh, production notes how it's almost a metaphor for the death of Brian Jones and the death of the innocence of the 60s. And yeah. then it's this also, just getting back to Frank's character, is this juxtaposition of Frank almost is metaphoric for the working yeah, working class, and then you have Brian for this opulent uh, society. Yeah, very much so. That uh, again, it was it was a, r a real pull for me with this story was that you know I I was you know I didn't think I was very poor, but you know when I grew up in London, we um, five of us slept in one room and we had a small kitchen with a a coal fire and and a little black and white TV. We didn't have a fridge or we didn't have a car or a telephone. And, but we didn't think we were poor. A lot of people in London live that way. And my uncles had all fought in the war and my dad had also, and they were very sort of, by the early 60s, they were very angry because London was a bombsite. It was still, it took a long time for Britain to recover from the efforts of the Second World War. And they'd won the war through discipline and order. And then in the 60s you saw these bands like the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Animals and they were long-haired, very sort of effeminate kind of kids who were making all this money and getting all these girls and getting all this fame. And here was this generation of men. They weren't old men. They were in their 30s and 40s. You know, they were pretty, you know, many of them went to war, were caught up in the 40s. Um, and, you know, they were angry by what was going on. You know, that the generation gap was never larger than it was in the 60s in Britain. These, these men were very, very angry with their sons and their daughters who dared to wear miniskirts and grew their hair long and, and followed these bands like the Rolling Stones. And so for me, the character of Frank represented not a strange character or, or, or in any way obscure person, but really represented most of the people living in Britain at that time the responsible people that were part of the establishment who had followed the rules and had followed order. I mean, you don't win a war by getting out of bed at three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, you win a war by being disciplined and ordered. So Frank really, I had a lot of sympathy for that, that character because I knew him. And even though I knew as a child growing up in the 60s that that world of Brian Jones and the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Animals was the world that I would inherit even though we had no money and we, we you know, we lived in, in, in a very impoverished way, that was never, that was all going to change. We were going to have this wonderful idea of the 60s. And so the swinging 60s only really swang for around about 0.1% of the population. And the rest of us looked into this bubble. And the thing about the bubble is that, you know, my generation wanted to be in the bubble. We wanted the hedonism and the and the, and the fun and the and the, and the, to be part of the part, that big party going on, but most people wanted to destroy the bubble. They they hated it. 
It's like you know we we can't have that. You know, so that's that was the uh, that was the real sixties in London in in Britain, and I think that when you look at Austin Powers, or you look at the the kind of spoof notion of the swinging sixties in London, um, it actually wasn't like that. There weren't that many girls wearing miniskirts. There wasn't that much commotion going on. Um, you know, if somebody walked down Carnaby Street with a with a with a different kind of costume or a weird outfit, um, the TV crews would be out immediately. You know, it was the media coverage in the sixties was huge, and that media coverage, of course, switched people on to the sixties. People like you know, like kids like myself and my cousins or whatever. But the mods and rockers were very, very few and very far between, and 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 they were being. But if there were a group of mods or rockers, they'd be filmed, and and you guys in America would see it, and think, oh my God, look at Britain, it's fantastic. There's hundreds and thousands of all these hippies wandering around, and all these mods and these rockers, and it wasn't like that really. It was a very small percentage of the population. So I kind of wanted to to show Brian as someone who was truly. An icon of the sixties, and, and unlike um, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, who who died very quickly after Brian's death, um, at the same age of twenty-seven, um, which was very eerie and bizarre, but they were really they've become icons of the sixties, and I think partly because the Rolling Stones have continued, Brian seems to have been forgotten, and yet here he was, truly an icon, truly a real mover and, and shaker of the 60s um, who seems to have been written out of all the textbooks you know, that was that was the fascination for me with Brian not that he was murdered which of course the film is about his murder um, that was pretty sensational when I read these books about his murder everybody assumed that Brian had just taken loads of drugs and got drunk and fell into his swimming pool the murder was sensational but what was more sensational for me was that he was such an important figure. He was the catalyst, the guy who started the Rolling Stones, the guy who introduced so many people to the Afro-American music of people like Robert Johnson and uh, Muddy Waters and Elmore James. You know, Brian was a massively important uh, person in that time. He was the friend of Bob Dylan. He was the guy that John Lennon respected. You know, he reintroduced Jimi Hendrix to America at Monterey in 1967. And so, where, why? Did I not know who he was? You know, I just remember there was a blonde guy in the Rolling Stones who kind of died alongside all those other people. And that's really what, again, what propelled me to want to make the film was, was, was the idea of that class difference which was explored so succinctly in a film called uh, The Servant by Joe Losey. It was a wonderful script by Harold Pinto in, in the early 60s. And then again, you know, with performance, the whole notion of, of what these rock stars needed, what their, their sort of their sort of need for these stronger guys would lead to other things going on in their in their heads and their lives. Well, you're talking about the the Mick Jagger film performance. Yeah. You know, you really do get a sense in your film Stoned that because I I was also reading that the Mick Jagger character could have been Brian Jones. Yeah. And. And maybe this gangster that comes up could have represented Frank. Yeah, a little bit like that. But both the servant and performance were, you know, films that I kind of thought about a lot whilst I was shooting and writing the script for this. Um, I think more with performance, 
the decadence of that character that Mick plays in the film, because Mick had originally turned the script of performance down, and because he said, this isn't me, I'm not an actor, I can't play this part, it's really ridiculous. And Donald Camel, who was a very, very good friend of Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones, who had written performance, based it on Brian. So Marion Faithful had said to Mick, just play Brian, just do Brian. So if anybody gets to see performance, which um, they certainly should, because it's the kind of seminal sort of 60s movie, really, mm. for the dark side of the 60s, um, they'll see Mick Jagger doing an impersonation of Brian Jones, basically, with a black wig. Um, so he played a dark side of Brian, and that, that film was, but it was also the idea of, of welcoming into your house death, which was, in performance, was James Fox, and, and it was, it was embracing un, that. Well, it was unsettling, too. You didn't know if, if, if uh, this gangster was going to, you know, was going to kill Mick Jagger or... Or love him, yeah. Yeah, it was very creepy. Yeah, they kept they kept the whole thing going in performance, which was which was terrific. And that, and again, I I've sort of reduced it down to its elements with with Stoned. So there there are, are kind of reflections of, of performance, certainly through Brian Jones's relationship with Anita Pallenberg, which was very decadent and very strange and and lots of fun, um, lots of S and M and lots of drug taking and lots of frolicking in the sixties. That sort of begins to to, to 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 turn bad, and I think that's that. There were the elements of performance I wanted, but also that invitation of that you invite death into your into your home. There's a certain point I think where Brian maybe had his talent may have run its course, and although strangely, you see, unlike Mick Jagger, who obviously has has still perpetuates the same sort of um, performance that he gave in 1969, you know, um, now on the road with the Rolling Stones with their huge sellout tour of North America, which seems to be endless and seems to be so popular it's, it's almost unbelievable. But Mick is still doing what Mick did. You know, he's, it's not that he has extended his talents too much, it's just that his talent, his, our fascination for him and Keith. Um, has just gone on. It's almost like genetically passed down, that, that somehow we want to see Mick Jagger doing his stuff on stage. For Brian, it was far more intellectual. It was far more, as an artist, he wanted to stretch himself. He wanted to record those musicians in Tujuka, the, these incredible Moroccan musicians. He wanted to score the film that he scored with Volker Schlondorf, who later went on to make the Tin Drum, which won the Oscar. So, you know, Brian may have well-scored an Oscar-winning movie. Uh, so in terms of world music, he was uh, renowned through his peers, like Pete Townsend and George Harrison and, and John Lennon. You know, that Brian was the guy you would speak to about, you know, how do you play a sitar? How do you work? Uh, you know, what, what is the, who is the best slide guitarist? You know, he, Brian knew everything about uh, musicians and music. So in a sense, Brian was way, way, way ahead of his time and much more of a Renaissance man than any of the other Rolling Stones. What Keith and Mick knew how to do was what they still do now, which was to rock and roll. They are they were rock and rollers. Brian wasn't a rock and roller. Brian was an intellect and he was um, incredibly charming. He sadly wanted to experiment in everything and wanted to push the barriers, sexually, politically, certainly. 
where uh, in terms of experimenting with drugs, Brian was in the forefront of everything, uh, which was kind of sad for him. Although, you know, as, as we say in the film, when he died, there really wasn't, there was, it was a, one prescribed drug in his blood, in his bloodstream, and, and uh, which was um, amphetamine, which, the, the, which had been given to him by, do, uh, by, by his private doctor, and some alcohol, which actually wasn't that excessive. So strangely, Brian was weaning himself off the destructive drugs that he was taking. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I, th I wonder, you know, it's, it's a great sort of dinner party kind of conversation about what Brian Jones would have done if he had survived the 60s. Um, and, you know, I think in the film, I kind of suggest that Brian really would never have survived if it wasn't at the hands of the guy who lived in his house, who was the builder, Frank Thorogood, it could have been almost anyone. Brian was so um, so prone to winding people up, to making, to pushing them, constantly pushing all the women around him. I mean, the five children he had that he didn't reckon, you know, really didn't take any responsibility for, um, from five different women. You know, he, he was uh, so. Um, Unable to grow up, he was so such a child and so so irresponsible and so immature um, when it came to anything other than music or, or or that that world of music, fashion, fame. He was very grown up in that sense that he knew how to he certainly knew how to dress and knew how to to behave. He would, he could articulate the music of the Rolling Stones, and that was the thing that Mick couldn't do until until the Stones were really up and running by about 65, 66. Finally, Mick and Keith got a voice. But in those early days, um, Brian was, you know, it was his band. They toured Germany and they were called Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones, you know. And that's, again, coming back to the, the motivation of making this film. It was a strong motivation for me to say, look, okay, I know that, that Brian was only in the band for seven years and they've been touring for 44 years, a long time. And I know that he really, you know, that, that they made some of the more successful albums after Brian's death. But he doesn't seem acknowledged at all. Mick never talks about him. Keith never talks about him. The Rolling Stones seem to have forgotten who Brian Jones was. The fact that Bill Wyman is the only Rolling Stone who says, no Jones, no Stones. You know, that it was Brian's band. He put them together to play the blues, to play music that people in Britain hadn't heard. Well, people, you know, white people in America hadn't heard it either, to be frank. But Brian had this obsession with Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and Elmore James. And, uh, you know, he, it was him who was like unemployed making this band work while Mick Jagger was London School of Economics and Keith Richards was at art school. They didn't know about the Rolling Stones. They were like, well, let's just, you know, let's play it. You know, we don't want to lose our education. But Brian was the one who was, like, forcing the band, you know. And the very, very beginning of the film, you see Brian on the phone saying, yeah, I'm Brian Jones, the manager of the Rolling Stones. He was their manager. He was their everything, you know, their inspiration. So for his memory, or for the memory of Brian, to have been eradicated is kind of weird. It's kind of odd. And uh, we're talking tonight with Stephen Woolley, and uh, he is the director of uh, Stoned. 
I really like the way that the whole film is shot because you really do bring back the whole Thank you. of the 60s and uh, you know I think of some of the classic films of that time um, just the way it was like that somehow they, they discovered to use the zoom and so everything would like zoom in and and also looking at the opulence the costumes um, even in the beginning of the film we see the uh, the footage of the band playing the way you shot it it really harkens back to looking at possibly some old uh, newsreel footage of early days of the Stones or the Beatles. So tell me about that process. Well, I, I had a very good cameraman, uh, Johnny Matheson, who did Gladiator and was Oscar nominated and um, has done some of the biggest movies in, in, in the world. I mean, um, and John and I went through the script and we basically, every flashback is a different film stock or a different way of shooting. So we used 60 millimeter, we used eight millimeter, we used reversal stock. Um, some of it is, is color saturated. We try to create um, a feeling of of a movie that could have been shot in the 60s. So when we opened the film with the Rolling Stones at the Marquee Club uh, in 1963, it's, 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 mon it's monochrome, it's black and white, it looks like photographs. We keep freezing frames so you can see the Stones as they were when Brian was really the leader of the band. In terms of the, of the look of the film, we actually found clothes that Brian wore. We found clothes that Anita Palmer wore. My costume designer, Roger, was, uh, is the, um, has the largest collection of 60s clothes in Europe. And he, through the use of the internet, was able to get hold of bits and, of necklaces and, and, and shoes that they actually wore. So we really did research the look pretty thoroughly. And in terms of the shooting of the film, I used a lot of low angles. I tried to make the film look a little bit like those films that inspired me, like The Servant and Performance, and certainly films like The Ipcress File, which, um, you know, where, where you're, you're not quite with the action all the time, you're sort of slightly separated. So the film has, I hope, a very 60s feel for those people who remember or have seen 60s movies. Those people that haven't, you know, will be, I th hopefully, pleasantly surprised by the style of the movie because it's very un-MTV. Although there are montages and there are musical sequences, they're much more like a 60s musical sequence or a 60s montage where you actually see things. Um, I mean, if we were filming now, for instance, you are wearing this wonderful suit and tie, and we would see that tie, you know, in Stoned. You would actually linger on the tie so we see it. Whereas most modern films, which just don't linger on anything, they're just so fast. They're just like someone walks in the room, sits down, bang, out, good, done, you know, fast. I, you know, I'd gone to so much trouble um, making people look the way they looked, whether it was the way that Keith Richards looked or the way that Anita Pallenberg looked, or simply the girls in the office when Frank Thurgood tries to get his money. You know, the, the, the makeup, the hair, the, the, the accoutrements of, of the 60s were, you know, beautifully... Um, art directed within the film and I wanted to see them I mean, I, as a producer I always hated making films um, and building wonderful sets and having a terrific art department and not seeing it you know somebody walks into a shop they buy a newspaper they walk out and I but we have all this beautiful stuff here and we're not seeing it and I think in the 60s People wanted you to see those things, and I certainly wanted the, the effect of this film to be uh, a trip back 
you know. And, and to, to a lot of young people, uh, another universe, uh, like going on a trip to Mars. This is a trip back to the 60s. And for an old audience, a nostalgic visit back to where what a place they remembered. So I was very, very keen and very careful about really trying to create this other world, you know. Um, it's not Star Wars, uh, but it's, for me, it's kind of, it is an another universe, another galaxy, another, another uh, dimension. And, I, you know, I'm th as a producer, through making films like Scandal and Backbeat, um, Backbeat was about uh, the, the Beatles and Hamburg, and Scandal was about the infamous Christine Keeler, Mandy Rice Davis um, sex scandal that that brought down the Tory government of the of the early sixties. You know, both of those films I I worked with first time directors, and as a producer, had a very strong hand in creating that that particular time, which was the early sixties. In this film, I'm creating another part of the sixties, which is the late sixties. And so I was very meticulous about the haircuts and, you know, you see the Rolling Stones at the beginning of the film with fairly short hair and, and you know, looking pretty conservative with their suits and things. And as the film progresses and you see flashback after flashback, you see the hair getting longer and longer and you see the clothes getting more extravagant and you see Brian Jones um, more flamboyant. Because um, Brian was kind of like a, a sort of heterosexual version of Oscar Wilde or I should probably a bisexual version of Oscar Wilde, a very strange kind of uh, a sort of a precursor to David Bowie and Mark Bolan to the glam rock days that, that followed quite quickly afterwards in the early 70s. Uh, Brian would have been so loved by those glam rockers because he was glam rock before glam rock was invented. Brian was wearing you know, makeup and and dressing in, in the most outrageous way. Well, um, you know, there's an interesting part in the film when Frank, he spends the night, and then the door opens and you think a woman's coming in the room. Yeah. And it actually is a woman, right? And, yeah. And then, but I like the way you did that because it was like, he really kind of blurred uh, gender, you know, didn't he? That was the first night that we see um, that, that Frank Thorogood stays at the house and he gets drunk with Brian and we immediately set up this notion of Frank Frank's kind of kind of more romantic idea of Brian by seeing a woman walk towards Frank and then it becomes Brian um, but Brian always wore his girlfriend's clothes I mean he was wearing his uh, a woman's and uh, uh, dressing gown and that was the thing with Brian he's you know he's always wearing Anna's sunglasses and 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 acting in a kind of very effeminate way um, which is part of his success with women. I mean, Marion Faithful again talks about how Brian would come round when uh, Mick wasn't around and get into bed with her, and it would be like a sister coming around, be like a, a girlfriend, you know. Sometimes they'd have sex, sometimes they wouldn't have sex, but it was Brian needing, you know, that kind of female company. And women were very relaxed around Brian. They felt that he was very sort of like simpatico with them. You know, he would talk about clothes and makeup and hair and boys didn't do that. Men didn't talk about those kind of things in the 60s and men were men, you know, and Brian was not of that, of that sort of absolute gender. He was of a mixed gender. And yeah, I established that pretty fast in the film and, and, and certainly it is that teasing of Frank's um, sexuality that, that finally, you know, leads 
to the it, it is the final straw I think when Brian starts to say you you know you want to take over from Anna you want to be my lover essentially um, and you you can never be that and that kind of notion has never consciously entered Frank's mind but subconsciously it's there from the, the moment he arrives at the house and we're talking with Stephen Woolley and uh, the name of the film is Stoned a lot of research going into this obviously ten years um, and there were several books that were written about Brian Jones. And yeah. So that, how did the, you? I mean, how did you go about getting the interviews with people to really make sure that you were creating something that was uh, authentic? Well, you know, the books were terrific. The, I, I read first um, uh, Painted Black, The Murder of Brian Jones, and then Who Killed Christopher Robin, The Murder of Brian Jones. Um, the problem with, for me was that the, the good thing about the books is that, that, that they, they, they spoke very much about how important Brian was and who the man was. And so when I acquired the rights on those books, I was acquiring the rights on something which talked about his murder, but more importantly, books that talked about Brian and his, the importance of Brian in the 60s. Um, but the murder thing was a bit worrying for me. I, I never felt that they had the two writers of, of those books had really done their homework. And so I, I found Anna Wolin. There were only four people there the night that Brian died. Brian, of course, Frank Thorogood. Um, Anna Wolin, who was the girlfriend of Brian Jones, his last girlfriend. And uh, Janet Lawson, who was a nurse who happened to be there. And none of the books really kind of quite explained why she was there. But anyhow, I tracked Anna Wolin down by using a private detective in Stockholm. And I flew her to London and uh, interviewed her extensively. And she then published her book, which was called The Murder of Brian Jones. And so I had the rights on that book as well. And I also bought Tom Keelock as a road manager and as a consultant. And then in the sort of mid-90s, the police thought that they might reopen the case. So they asked people to come forward with any information about what happened that day. And they didn't really have enough information. So they passed it all on to me, which was quite good of them. Um, the phone numbers of the people that had come forward. And they said that Janet Lawson was probably dead, this nurse who was there at the poolside, and that she disappeared in 1969. They, they, they couldn't trace her or find her. And so I then hired another private detective on the recommendation of Stanley Kubrick's assistant, and he managed to find an address for me for Janet Lawson. So I, I wrote to Janet uh, quite a long, detailed letter explaining that you know I'd produced films like The Crying Game and Michael Collins and Backbeat and Scandal and, you know, I wanted to make a film that was not um, some kind of, you know, just some sort of trashy uh, movie about Brian and his death and that she held the key for me as to how he died, what actually happened that night. So luckily her daughter was at art college and she'd seen a lot of the films that I produced and, and encouraged her mum to come forward. So. Janet broke her vow of silence and um, she hadn't spoken to any of the press or the police or any of the authors of the books at that time and subsequently has gone back into uh, into obscurity. Um, but she told me, she gave me this huge interview. I took her back to the house, we went back to the pool where Brian died, um, where she discovered the body and then I reunited her with Tom Keelock, her ex-lover and we videotaped everything and and she told me wonderful facts about the last day, that it wasn't a big party. The books talked about lots of people being there and cars coming and going. And, uh, you know, if you'd read the books, you'd think it was like the Kitty the Circus, that there was just a, a massive sort of 
orgiastic party, but it wasn't. It was very quiet. Both girls said the same thing. This was incredible because Anna and Janet didn't speak to each other at times, certainly haven't spoken to each other since, had nothing in common. Uh, Anna hated Janet because Janet was another woman and, and Anna was obsessively in love with Brian Jones. Uh, Janet had no thought for Anna because she was there to meet her friend Tom Keelock and she didn't like the Rolling Stones very much anyway. So there was a kind of, there was, there was animosity from the first moment they met. They didn't speak to each other and certainly haven't spoken to each other since. And yet both of their descriptions of the night were very clear. Uh, one from the point of view of Brian Jones, which was Anna's point of view. She told me that, uh, that um, Brian had fired Frank Thorogood that morning, which she hadn't said, told the police at all which gave me, I mean, gave a lot of motivation for Frank and then for Frank to be angry with Brian. And what Janet told me was that Frank had tried to molest her, that Frank had put some sort of weird tasting substance into their food, that Frank had got her drunk on vodka, that Frank was, was shaking so violently when he came to the house looking for a towel that he couldn't light his cigarette. All these things were completely new. They weren't in the books. They weren't certainly weren't in the police statements at the time, um, and allowed me the freedom to actually make the film. The books worried me. It didn't seem as if they had actually researched the material enough. Um, but when I had tracked down Anna Wolin in Stockholm and then tracked down uh, Janet Lawson, I felt free. That I felt un, uh, sort of unburdened to make the film the way that that the film is, which was that it was a very quiet and quite disturbing night when Brian died. It wasn't a sort of uh, crazy party or, or mad sort of big mistake. It was actually much more scary than that. It's quite a kind of gothic moment. And I, I was very lucky with, with the house that we found, which isn't actually Brian's house, because Brian's house wasn't as, as wonderful as the house we had. But I wanted the house to play a part in the film, and, the, and it overlooks this sort of tragedy of his death. Um, I'm making the film sound very serious and very depressing, but it's actually there is some. But you know, that's one thing I was really, I was actually kind of uh, pleasantly surprised with, because normally when you see a, a, a biopic about, uh, you know, a rock star that you know is careening out of control and it's going to have a bad ending, it can be a little bit depressing. Yeah. But yeah. I don't, I didn't really get the vibe, and I think it's maybe the little button you put at the end of the film, but. Uh, no, I bring the ghost of Brian back in. I, I needed Brian to say those words that um, the problem with happiness is that it's, it is boring. Because I think that, that that is the problem with happiness, is that we all have this, this notion of what happiness is. And certainly most people wouldn't think that, 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 that happiness is coming in on a Sunday morning and um, conducting an interview. Um, but that, you know, you're working, you're doing the thing you enjoy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that is... The notion of happiness is 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 is, is that it it's it occurs it occurs in retrospect. You're never consciously happy, um, and if you are consciously happy, it is boring. I mean, lying on the beach with a book after ten minutes becomes boring. You know, it's it's not it, it's the idea that you're relaxing and you can relax in many many ways, um, or the idea that you're participating in something you love to do. That's a form of happiness, and I and I think I wanted the ghost of Brian to sort of to kind of rebalance the film at the end, and I and and that's why I brought him in. And I want I also wanted to see you know the show that 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 life with Anita Pallenberg and the and the, the life that Brian led, 
you know, was actually a lot of fun. They were they were having a good time. You what you know the, the it, it's not a moral story of drugs are bad for you. It's in a in a in a sense the film is really about excess. Excess is probably bad for you, and Brian was an excessive hedonistic character. Um, but there was a lot of fun to be had in that, and you know. I think anybody seeing the movie will want to get the next plane to Marrakesh immediately because I think Morocco and that world they lived in in Marrakesh was, was incredibly sexy and incredibly uh, fun and incredibly uh, uh, kind of compulsive. I feel it's a trip back to the 60s that you, you is both incredibly, uh, hopefully, uh, seductive but, uh, but also sort of also quite dark. I have Sorry. to finish there because I have to go to this my next meeting. So if you have one question, no, just thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> it's great you came in. I'm, I'm there's really so impressed. many so many questions. No, but, I can uh, keep talking forever. But no, I, it, was, it was great. I mean, you, you, it's now five past twelve, and I think I've just blown my next meeting. Is it really five past twelve? Well, well, we'll wrap it up, and and thank you so much. Oh, you're no, you're just you. a wealth of knowledge to unfold. No, no, I, and I, I'm really um really pleased I did this, and this is a great. Little place. What are these records here? Yeah, a lot of bands come here, and new bands, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, who started here was uh, was uh, Beck. Oh, really? Yeah, he came. No one would play him, and then he. Uh, That's he, interesting. He got his break here. God, I love Beck. Yeah. Well, listen, he didn't like me either. That was interesting. Yeah. Well, listen. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen Woolley, and uh, best of luck with Stone. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Great. If you would like more information about Stephen Woolley visit imdb.com. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs>